Welcome to this afternoon's discussion of the Netflix series, Indian Matchmaking. I thank the traditional owners of this country, the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation, on whose land we meet, who facilitate um, the stories we tell and those that we hear. I pay my respects to the elders, past, present, and emerging. I would also like to thank our generous sponsors for making sidewalks possible. They are the City of Perth, Rayner Real Estate, Aspen Corporate Financial Planning, and Herbert Smith Freehills. Thank you also to Studio 281 for having us in their beautiful gallery. Please note the doors and follow the exit signs in case of an emergency. Basically, the doors that you came through are the ones you will run out of. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, my name is Rashida Murphy, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce this afternoon's proceedings to you. Before I introduce my fellow panelists, I'll just say a little bit about myself. Um, I was born in a little Indian town in the center of India, and when I was 19, a match was arranged for me. After about 19 years, the marriage fell apart, and as a middle-aged teenager, I fell in love again with a white guy, and that was quite a relief because it wasn't, I didn't have to ask for permission. There were no aunties arranging matches for me, and it was really easy. So I will now introduce the fabulous Sadia Ahmed to my left. And I'll read because I don't want to get it wrong. Um, Sadia was born in Pakistan. She is a writer, a blogger, and a storyteller whose passion for the arts and human rights comes together in her various roles as a teacher, theater artist, and journalist. She joins the equally fabulous and undeniably handsome Dr. Gerard de Cruz, who was born in Malaysia of Indian Malayali Christian parents. He's a hardworking GP who dabbles in art and karaoke in his spare time and describes himself as someone who didn't believe in arranged marriages until he found himself complicit in one. Welcome to you both. And for those in the audience who are not quite familiar with the Netflix series, um, here's a quick recap of, the in, of Indian matchmaking. So basically Indian matchmaking is um, about a professional matchmaker from Mumbai, a lady called Seema Taparya. And the show follows her as she arranges the marriages mostly of the young Indian diaspora uh, in America and also in India. So that's what the show is about. It has had um, quite a few reviews and apparently a cult following, about which I was completely unaware until this afternoon, but there you go. Um, and uh, yes, so she basically arranges marriages. And we are here as a panel to discuss 
um, what the show means for us as people of the Indian and subcontinental diaspora. We've all grown up in communities which are very similar to the ones described by Seema Taparya. But uh, there's an interesting difference. None of us actually come from the majority Indian diaspora, which is mostly Hindu. So, I'm going to start by throwing open the question uh, to you, Sadia. What is your opinion of the show, and how much of it do you relate to as a young Pakistani woman? Um. Indian matchmaking has uh, been really popular among people um, across the world because it's an English language and talks about a custom which is completely unheard of in many parts of the world. Uh, the show was suggested to me by Claudia. Uh, she wanted me to watch the show and obviously when I started watching, it was a binge watch. Now, uh, <laughs> when I watched the show, obviously there are many aspects which you find regressive. For example, there is a girl who knows exactly what she wants, and she's portrayed as somebody who is a villain, who's somebody um, who's asking for too much. So there were many, there's a boy who is rejecting every girl who comes his way because he does not find her probably good looking enough, or um, he cannot uh, have that so imagined chemistry with her. But then at the same time, uh, being a Pakistani, being born and bred in Pakistan, also being a part of uh, the matchmaking process, I think that this show does not represent even 10% of this practice. This show is very progressive, actually, as compared to the practice which is actually uh, prevalent in India and Pakistan. It's not as amazing and as glamorous as it sounds to be. For example, there's one thing called trolley culture. In now, what trolley culture is that a girl, a guy's family would come um, to girl's home to see the girl and see if the girl and her family are suitable enough to become a part of the boy's family. And uh, the girl would come with a trolley which has tea and some other snacks. And she is judged on the basis of how she looks, how she walks, how she presents herself, how wealthy and affluent the drawing room looks. So, in reality, when you talk about countries, the South Asian countries, it is a very regressive uh, practice, and I think that Indian matchmaking has not even shown one-tenth of it. Thank you. Sadia. Um, Gerard, your point of view, please, because you were kind of railroaded into watching the show, too. Um, <laughs> What is your personal experience and what do you think of this show? It was not binge-watching for me. It was <laughs> extremely painful, but I, I got this email and the suggestion was, we're going to talk about this, and I'm like, I had already seen the wife uh, and my daughter watch it, and they were more watching it just because it was very amusing. And I was like, how can you even sit there and watch this? This is terrible. <laughs> you know that all of this is scripted. It cannot be really happening. Until I was told, okay, now you have to watch this and give us your opinion. Um, I agree with Sadia. It's really not an accurate 
uh, representation of what goes on. Um, I do agree that there are, uh, I'll talk about it from a Malaysian point of view, there are people who actually go through matchmakers with albums and photographs and files and biodatas and horoscopes that need to match. It, it does exist. Um, but honestly, it's not an aggressive process the way it's portrayed. Um, Sima says a lot of things that are absolutely either on one end or the other. So if someone came away thinking, oh, gee, is this how you met your wife? I would say, oh, God, no. <laughs> but that would be my take on that. But uh, you did have an arranged marriage, didn't you? So would you like to speak a little bit about that? So a little bit of a background in, in the fact that I never thought I would end up in an arranged marriage. Uh, I myself was a product of uh, a love marriage. So my parents fell in love. And mind you, this was almost 60 years ago in Malaysia. That's not heard of. The second unheard of thing was that my parents were from different backgrounds. My mom was a Hindu. My dad was a Christian. It was taboo on every uh, front. But they got married. And so here I was growing up thinking, this is what it is. Uh, in Malaysia, the term is used as a love marriage. You fall in love with the person, you get married to the person. Um, I grew up, I went to uni. Uh, it was always, no way can I marry a total stranger. And then one month short of my 30th birthday, I get this warning phone call from mother. You haven't got married yet. You're my only child. When are we going to get offspring? If you don't find someone, no, seriously, if you don't find someone, we're going to find someone for you. And it's like, uh-oh. Um, but look, I didn't have much of an option. And I went, OK, let's do this. What's the worst that can happen? I can just possibly say no. The process was a month of me needing to see different um, women or ladies. Most of them were introduced by friends or someone from the church or an uncle or an auntie who knew someone else. Um, and I ended up with my lovely wife of 28 years. <laughs> Thank you, Gerard. Um, Sadia, my next question is to you. You mentioned something about the problematic aspect of this show. You mentioned aggression. But there's also a great degree of commodification of women in this show. Now, we are familiar with that, not just in the diaspora, but growing up in the countries that we do. We understand that commodification exists, but there's a very specific, you know, fair, slim, graduate, flexible, um, or, or, all of that, those descriptions of girls as having to be a certain way. So is your experience something similar in your informal sort of matchmaking circles? Because I believe you have not had an arranged marriage, is that right? Uh, yeah, I did not have an arranged marriage. Um, the traditional arranged marriage, um, 
I knew my husband before, and we were really good friends, and we thought we would get married. But my parents did not know about this. So we pretended it was an arranged marriage. So he told his mom that, like, you know, there is a girl, there's a girl I know, not that there's a girl I love. So there's a girl I know through a friend of mine. And so I think, like, you know, you're looking for girls, so why not you also go there and have a look? So this is how my marriage happened, and uh, I hope... Uh, my parents do not get to listen to this uh, particular <laughs> podcast or something. <laughs> this would be a huge surprise Oops. for them. Yeah, this would be a huge surprise. Now, uh, coming to my personal um, matchmaking experience and talking about uh, the commodification of women. So, uh, when I was uh, 20 or ni 19 or 20, somewhere around that, so there was a proposal. I was in Pakistan, the guy lived in England. I was studying architecture at that time and we were working on a project where we were supposed to design a hospital. I completely sucked at that. So um, when this proposal came, I was really excited that, okay, fine, I'll say, yeah, I want to get married and I would just leave the studies and go away and get rid of this hospital project. So uh, now that was a time in my life when I was going through various phases of self-discovery and quite opposite to what I am today. At that time, I was really religious, a very uh, religious practicing Muslim. And when the guy's family comes, uh, they say that, no, this girl is too religious for us. <laughs> so she covers her head and all, no, she's too religious for us. Um, I don't know if they know uh, how I am uh, like now. Similarly, <laughs> similarly, there was another uh, proposal where the guy's uh, mom thought my cheeks were a bit too big. Okay, um, then there was another proposal where the guy's mother thought I was too short, so I should have been a few inches taller. So, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you both. Um, yes, um, it was interesting. I didn't quite plan for such intimate revelations, particularly <laughs> if parents are not quite in the story yet. So we'll, we'll have to, yeah, think about not broadcasting it internationally. Um, I would like to go back with both of you to a point I made earlier. Um, India is a majority Hindu country. And when uh, the Indian matchmaker travels and speaks about um, finding a suitable match, there's often the, the very strident demarcations of caste and religion and class are disguised in weasel language like, um, what do they use? Uh, similar backgrounds, uh, community networks to actually disguise the fact that a Brahmin, for example, will only marry another Brahmin and a Punjabi Khatri will only marry another Punjabi Khatri and so on and so forth. Now, the interesting aspect with the three of us here is that caste actually doesn't matter to us. Language does because we uh, come from different language backgrounds. And it is always ideal that when you marry someone, they should maybe probably speak at least one of the languages that you do. So that kind of matters somewhat, but caste doesn't. However, class does. Would you agree? 
Uh, yeah, I completely agree with this. Like, uh, again, um, I would speak from my own experience. Now, my father's family um, comes from a traditional background, and in his family, caste was an issue. Like, you had to marry in that particular caste, like that particular tribe my father came from. And then there is also another interesting aspect, which actually, not really interesting, but like, you know, a byproduct of patriarchy. Um, you don't marry your daughter out of the caste, but it's okay if your son marries out of the caste. Because if your daughter is married out of the caste, the, the girl is going away. But if your son is marrying, marrying out of the caste, that's okay because you're bringing the girl home. So this is also one concept of patriarchy. Uh, now coming to the class, class is I think one of the most important aspects of arranged marriages. Uh, people want to marry people um, who like, you know, come from similar economic, social and cultural backgrounds. So class is quite an issue. And um, if you notice in this, this uh, season, Indian matchmaking, most of these people are from the same class. You don't come across anybody who's from Indian middle class. You don't come across anybody who's from Indian lower middle class. There's so many religions in India, but the only people you see there are Hindus. Caste, class, important, would you, would you say? Because you grew up in a diaspora. You didn't grow up in India, right? I think when you grew up in Malaysia, the caste system is almost non-existent, not the way you look at it in, say, India. Um, and I know a fair bit about that because I had the opportunity to go back to India and study for about seven or eight years. However, class, I think, is something that is, let's put it this way, this is now my perspective. I am now meeting someone whom I have never met before. Um, and the process for me would be that I would never get a chance to actually date her or go out with her. I was given perhaps at the most two chaperoned visits, after which I would need to commit to uh, my wife's family. Yes, go ahead, we can have the engagement. and. Until the engagement had been done, I would not be allowed to go out with her. That's just how it was. So I think when a situation like that occurs and you have no idea of the other person, and there's only that much that you can get in a chaperone visit, what helped for the both of us was we did come from similar backgrounds. We did have common interests. Um, we knew in a peripheral way each other's families. And that helped in that process of us gelling as we are right now. Um, I think people who fall in love, you've got this whole thing about, I'm going to meet this person, and then if I like this person, this is it, and then we'll take it from there. But here you're in a situation, I'm going to meet the person and I have to say yes. And then we'll have to work on everything else. And in that instance, I think the whole where do you come from, who are you, you know, this is not to sound like a snob, but some level of an educational status. Um, can the person communicate with you? Uh, does she like the same things that you do? 
Uh, and that is what that matchmaker does. They, they literally bring all of these things and say, so this is so-and-so, and by the way, this is her educational background, these are her parents, this is where she comes from, and we think that with these similarities, so yes, definitely class came into it, not caste, um, backgrounds came into it, but for me personally, I felt the reason why ours worked as well as it did was because we had a lot of common uh, issues. Of course, uh, my wife will tell you that we've had our share of disagreements, uh, regardless of how everything else gelled. Uh, there were things that you discovered only after you got married, um, which the matchmaker doesn't tell you about. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I have here with me um, an Indian paper with a matrimonial column, because in case you think that engaging a professional matchmaker is the only way to go, it isn't. There are things, lovely little things called matrimonial ads in papers. And I'm just going to read a couple to get to my next point. Um, there is uh, undeniably an obsession with fairness in India. So uh, these matrimonial ads are divided into caste and religion and um, others, including a section which says elite brides wanted. Elite, yes, because the others are just riffraff. So, <laughs> you know, you, you need an elite bride. And there's also another uh, section for elite grooms. And basically, the, you know, it's a code for Brahmin, which is the highest caste in the Hindu caste system that you can have. So the Brahmins are at the top of the food chain, and so they advertise for elite brides and grooms. And usually, there's a lot of emphasis on these elite grooms who are, of course, doctors and lawyers and engineers, you know, you can't possibly be anything but. And um, they are very tall and they are very fair. And they require a partner who is also tall and fair. And, um, you know, financially well off, of course. So here's one. Brahman, 30, 163 centimeters. They do uh, tend to be quite specific. MBBS lives in Hyderabad. Father is a well-known businessman, because that's important, never mind the mother. Family is financially well-off with a good net worth. Looking for a suitable, well-educated, fair match from any community in India. So this is a bit unusual. Um, what are your thoughts on this um, colorism? And by the way, I'm, I'm going to be really blunt because I'm married to a white guy and he actually sees no difference between brown people at all. We're all brown. If we are brown, we are brown. <laughs> so there's, there's like no such thing as light brown and dark brown and maybe a little bit brown and mostly brown. <laughs> he, he just can't get it. Whereas in India, and Pakistan and possibly Malaysia, <laughs> we do understand that there are gradations of brown skin. And somehow it matters. 
If you're light brown, you're more desirable than if you're not. So can we um, talk about that a little bit? Do you, do you see that in your community? Uh, yeah, colorism um, is a huge factor when it comes to arranged marriages. And this is something that, as Rashida has mentioned, I realized when I came here, because all of us were brown. And uh, like, you know, for anyone who um, comes uh, from like, you know, some other community, when you see us, all of us Indians, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, we all look alike to you. There's not much difference. But when we are there in our countries, this is a huge issue that you're fair or you're dark. Now, there's also one uh, really interesting concept about it, which is that if a girl is fair, it means she comes from a rich family. It is considered like, you know, people with fair skin are automatically considered to be coming from upper middle class or upper class. Now, this is a stereotype which is in people's minds. So, um, and dark skinned people, this is why our colorism is such a huge issue in the countries that we come from, that girls from a very young age start using skin whitening creams which actually lightened your complexion and also result in many kinds of skin diseases. And most of these skin whitening creams, uh, when you see their advertisements, they mention matrimony in it. That you're going to get the perfect groom if you use, uh, for example, there's one cream called Fair and Lovely. So you have to use it, use it for 14 days, according to them. And many of my cousins, uh, they used it and uh, made no difference. And uh, they thought on the 13th day that probably 14th day would bring a difference, but it did not, of course. So yeah, colorism is a huge concern. In, and uh, interestingly, if a boy is not fair-skinned, if a boy is quite brown or uh, comparatively uh, dark as compared to the girl, that does not make a difference. It is clearly mentioned that nobody looks at this, uh, the color of uh, a boy's skin. It is always about a girl's skin. Yeah. Gerard, any thoughts? Um, it is definitely something that is talked about in Malaysia. Now, I can't talk about whether it's still going on right now. We're, we're looking at when I got married 25, 28 years ago. Yes, one of the leading adverts that all my cousins would watch would be the fair and lovely. Um, everyone wants to watch that, they want to go out, and every household had a tube of that because if you use that, you were going to look like that Bollywood actress. And I think in, in places like Malaysia where some of us have never been to India, so we have no notion whatsoever of India. We have probably been in countries like Malaysia for three generations. Our grandparents were born there, perhaps. So all that we know about India or the culture, perhaps what's been handed down, but more importantly, what does Bollywood say? And Bollywood always goes with fair, beautiful, slim, uh, blue eyes which is a rarity for those of you who really know Indians. It's probably contact lenses more than anything else. But look, there is so much that is pushed in that finally the Malaysian thinks, oh, okay, that's how you need to look at. I'm glad that things have changed a lot. Uh, I'm glad that uh, when I look at my children, um, 
they don't see different shades of brown. They are very comfortable in who they are. They're not out to go get the next whitening cream, et cetera, et cetera. But when, where we come from, yes, I think it's, it's, it's unfair, and I will say this because it now puts a target on my head. Unfortunately, men can look, and I'm going to quote a cousin of mine when she went through her process, men can look like the back of a bus. <laughs> as long as they have a good bank account, they're marriable. But a woman needs to have X, Y, Z. It doesn't matter if she has a good education, if she's a doctor, um, because she doesn't fit criteria X, Y, and Z, she's not going to get married. Um, and it's sad, but it's true. Thank you. Thank you both for your insights. The other thing also with the whole professional matchmaker, um, you know, on Netflix, is that a lot of informal matchmaking goes on in our countries all the time. And usually it's a bunch of aunties or, you know, friends of the family or, you know. Um, I remember growing up my own mother telling me that um, when she was seven or eight, her grandmother told her who she was going to marry. Not that she was a child bride, my mother was a bit of a rebel. She ran away with a married man and, um, you know, all those years ago that was uh, fairly radical. But the point is that matchmaking in an informal way exists in communities like ours and commu uh, diaspora communities as well all the time. And all that this show seems to do is highlight some really interesting and marketable aspects of the whole process, which is simply, you know, what are these diasporic kids going to do if they want to meet and marry people who look and sound like they do? Um, you mentioned, Sadia, earlier that uh, a couple of the girls were kind of bullied for having a mind of their own. And I think you were talking of Aparna? Yeah, yes, because she, there's this girl who has a mind of her own and basically says, if you show me a dropkick, I'm going to say no. So do not bring dropkicks to me. I have, a, I have standards. And the matchmaker gets really irate about this whole thing and says things like, oh, she has, she's got tickets on herself. She's up herself. She needs to lower her standards. What standards is she talking about? And so, you know, we were all quite upset <laughs> because we were all, yeah, go Aparna, <laughs> say no to all the drop cakes. <laughs> and um, there was all that. So what, do, do you think that sort of bullying aspect of a matchmaker, either a formal or an informal, um, th uh, exists, like in your experience, you mentioned, I think your sister went to a professional matchmaker. Yeah, so what was that like for her? Uh, bullying is definitely an important aspect uh, when it comes to uh, traditional matchmaking. Uh, for example, uh, in uh, Pakistan and India, our families are also very involved in our 
marriage. Not only our immediate families, but also our uncles and aunts and everyone. So my aunt's daughter is, uh, like, she's looking for proposals and uh, they want her to get married. And my mother was telling me on phone that this girl has high standards. So whenever some boy comes, she says that she doesn't want to marry him. And I said that it is because you have low standards. You want to marry her to any guy who just uh, comes away. So this is not how it works. Now, coming to my sister's experience, my sister is nine years younger to me, and she recently got married um, in October, actually, and it was through a matchmaker. My uh, family by now was quite uh, progressive, and they asked my sister if she had someone in mind. And my sister, uh, being a feminist, but like she was, she said that all the men that I come across, I do find one problem or the other. <laughs> Therefore, <laughs> I cannot really tell, but yeah, I do want to get married and I want to settle. So uh, they went to this matchmaker, but this matchmaker was very unlike Seema Taparia. It was an office where my mom went and uh, gave her details. And then they gave a few telephone numbers to my mom that these are people who are like you, like they come from the same background, from the same cultural background, from the same social background and stuff like that. And yeah, this is how she got married and she's really happy so far. So it, the boy ticked all the boxes for her. The boy ticked she all... She had a list. Yeah, she had a list. I love this. <laughs> this is how you flip patriarchy. Yeah, my sister actually rejected many boys uh, who were coming uh, to my mom's place. So yeah, the boy, this boy actually ticked all the boxes. And there's also one really interesting thing that when um, the boy comes to my mom's place and uh, they think like, you know, the boy's family thinks that this is a suitable match. My parents and my sister think that, that yes, this is a suitable match. The numbers were exchanged. Um, my sister is going to kill me when I tell her, uh, when I'm telling all her intimate details, but yeah, whatever. <laughs> so, <laughs> she's, she's a few continents away. So uh, what my sister did, because she had seen um, marriages around her, marriages which were not really successful marriages, and she knew that, like, you know, if I'm going for an arranged marriage, it should be ticking all the boxes. And when the numbers were exchanged, she had a few preferences that she had in her mind, which were regarding her work, regarding her independence, regarding her um, say, and regarding her agency in decision-making um, with reference to her own life. And this is something that she checked with the boy first. And I asked her that, was this the first conversation you did for him? The first thing you asked him that, oh, do you have a shoe with all this? This is something that I'm going to do? She said, yes. Because if he said no at that point, probably I could finish the conversation right away. So when it is an arranged marriage, this is also an aspect because you keep your emotions aside. There are no emotions involved unless or until you start talking to the person and you develop a bonding with them. So yeah, she did that. So uh, like a transaction, I suppose, being yeah. interviewed for a job interview and um, if you're suitable, we'll employ you. Otherwise, you know, keep moving on. Um, the other thing that occurs to me as I'm listening to you both, that uh, this uh, insistence on, uh, you know, the, in the series, that the girls are packaged to present their best selves forward, isn't actually all that different from online dating, where there is a pressure to package yourself and put your best foot forward. And, you know, you, d you don't post your unflattering pictures uh, when you're trying to attract um, someone on Tinder or, you know, um, 
other dating sites, depending on your preference. So uh, how is a professional... Uh, we, we, I find myself also getting quite outraged by the show and by the insistence on the girls being a certain way and uh, scolded for not being pliable enough. But the young people that I talk to tell me that, well, you know, what do you think online dating is all about? <laughs> so uh, is, there, is there a correlation um, that we are just involving in a professional matchmaking capacity a third person instead of doing it all ourselves? What do you think? Look, I think the reality is that when, whether you're going to do an online dating or whether it's through a matchmaker, a lot of people, when they get to that stage and you're either doing an online dating or you're going through the matchmaking, um, you've already got to the point where I'm not meeting anyone outside. I am not finding anybody at work. I'm not the kind of person who's going to go out and meet. Therefore, tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. And this can be both a male thing and a female thing. So many people talk about my biological clock, and here we're talking about women, but I think men also have something not dissimilar, all right? And you're suddenly going, okay, now it's time, it's time, I'd like to settle down. But if I put an unflattering picture, who's going to take a second look? So now I need to make myself look terribly attractive by saying I go to the gym and I do this and I do that and I have hiked base camp and beyond several times. Um, I might have only done it on virtual TV, never, but you put all these things up only because you feel that if I put my only self up, I'm not going to be attractive. Uh, and I think that matchmakers just capitalize on that as well. Um, I would like to say one thing. Um, this was pretty much in respect of my late father-in-law, okay? He was the person, when, when I went in to see uh, my wife at that time, she wasn't my wife yet, but he had a list of things. And right on top of that list, he just sat down and he said, I hope you're not expecting a dowry because it's not coming. Now, this is very unusual because it's an unwritten rule, well, if you're getting married to my daughter, here, hang on, I'll give you this, 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 this. Uh, and please, will you marry my daughter? But he was so firm, very first time he's seeing me, and he's saying, if you're expecting a dowry, you're not going to get one. Because my daughter is your dowry. Yes. To this day, we still remember that because he was, he was a very amazing man in the sense he said, I have educated her. She can stand on her own two feet. You marry her for who she is, but don't expect anything else. So I think that there are people out there who go through that process, and I'm glad that someone like my father-in-law was there because he actually turns around and says, look, my daughter is as valuable. Mind you, my mother was not happy. 
Okay, traditional background. Uh, we had a very long drive home after that. <laughs> I hope you're not thinking about saying yes to that girl. I'm like, why? Well, because that auntie is going to give you that much more and that uncle will set you up in a private practice and that's so and so. But these people, they don't want to give us anything. And I was like, no, mom, but she's, no, no, that's beside the point. That's beside the point. Um, of course, she wasn't pleased when I eventually agreed out of all the others that we had gone to see that I was going to marry my wife. Um, but she had to get used to it. I mean, look, she said I had to get married through an arranged marriage. Okay, tick. But when it came to the choice, I made that choice. And then after this, you can't say... Um, yes or no. So I think there are still a lot of forward-thinking parents who will actually step out and say, look, my daughter's got a, a checklist as well. If you meet that checklist, then we are fine. Otherwise, that's the door. Yeah. Actually, I have a diary story of my own because um, when I met my white husband about 20 years ago. He was terribly excited at the thought of dating an Indian woman because he had read badly um, <laughs> things about, you know, dowries and things. And it was all very exotic. And yeah, it has been a very long and hard education. <laughs> But one of the things he said to me, I said, oh, you know, you realize we'll have to go to India. You do have to meet my parents, even if we are proper adults. Uh, you'll need to still come home with me um, or come to India with me. And he said, oh, will I get a dowry? I said, of course, darling, you will. And, he, and I said, but, you know, my parents aren't that well off. So, you know, it'll be in the form of an animal or two. You know, you will, you will not actually get gold and riches and whatever else you think you're going to get. And he says, yeah, that's fine. He says, cow or goat? I said, oh, I think it'll probably be a goat. <laughs> we did go and um, he did get a goat. <laughs> just, just not in the form that he thought. Um, my mom made this beautiful goat curry for him. <laughs> He still thinks about it and remembers it to this day. Because afterwards he says, where's my goat? I said, you ate it this afternoon. <laughs> so yeah, uh, he didn't get a dowry either, which was very sad. So any final thoughts from both of you about the whole process of matrimony as a business, matrimony as a transaction? What works, what doesn't? Are we going to do things differently? Um, you have marriageable children, I know this. You, you don't have any yet. <laughs> would you subject your kids to... Um, oh, more to the point, would your kids allow you to subject them to an arranged marriage? I don't know, maybe we should ask them. <laughs> Um, we've had this conversation in very light tones in, and as far as we're concerned, look, 
you go, you find someone, but if at any point you feel that you would want us to step in and perhaps introduce someone, um, say yes, but otherwise you make your choice. And then there's always that but. But please make sure that, and that's when that list comes out, but Look, I, I, I think realistically as parents, it's like just make sure that whoever it is is going to look after you, is going to respect you, uh, is going to take you for who you are. Um, I would never say never because that's where I was and look where I am and I have no regrets whatsoever. We are extremely happy. But I also know when we talked uh, informally with Rashida, there are also nightmare stories, horror stories of what uh, arranged marriages have turned out to be. And so there are two sides. Um, I'd say there are a lot of good points to it. Um, and if ever the kids were open to it and they said, yes, would you? I'd say, hey, look, let's look into it. But other than that, I would say that my take on it is it has its place. Uh, there are some of us who would just never be able to go out and find someone. Uh, and if a process like this was available, less aggressive than SEMA, um, definitely yes. Um, I'm not against marriages, uh, arranged marriages anymore. Um, there used to be a lot of thoughts in my mind, and the biggest one, uh, and I'll end with that one, that thought was, how do you marry a total stranger and then, and then I'm just going, I, I, I cannot think about anything to a total stranger. You know, it's like, you don't know this person. How do you start? What do you do? Um, it's, it's so uncomfortable, you know, but it worked. It worked. It's, it really is a, a, a transaction. It really has to be, now we're going to make it work, and um, we take it from there. Mm. Sadia, for your yet-to-be-born uh, children, Probably no children. <laughs> <laughs> that is quite likely too, yes. But what are your thoughts on for or against arranged marriages? I think I would agree with Gerard here. Um, I used to be against arranged marriages completely. I found it a very regressive practice. I found it um, to be a practice that was only fueling patriarchy because what I had seen that women were the ones that were crushed the most. Besides, in case of arranged marriage, uh, like the girl I felt that had a lot more pressure as compared to the boy. But now, like, you know, with age, with time, and uh, seeing the examples of both love marriages, like we call it love marriages in, um, <laughs> in Pakistan, just like in Malaysia, so when I see the examples of, uh, there are failures in love marriages, there are failures in arranged marriages, there are arranged marriages that have done exceptionally well. 
I look at my sister, I see how happy she is, how happy she has been throughout her engagement. It was an arranged marriage, but then she had the agency. She was the one who decided that she's going to marry this boy out of the ones that were like, you know, um, presented. presented to her. So yeah, I think uh, that there are both aspects. And then again, um, as uh, Gerard had earlier mentioned, that when um, it is an arranged marriage, it is like, you know, you consider many practical aspects. For example, you consider relatability. And there's so many things that where you do not let the emotions take over you. So there are both sides to it. And um, I think at this stage in my life, I'm not completely opposed to any idea in the world. So, but it is important that if it is an arranged marriage, the girl and the boy should have the final say. Arranged marriage or a matchmaker or parents or uh, cousins or families, they should only be, they should only be acting like Tinder, not more than that, so yeah. <laughs> Okay, I think we are just about out of time. And um, would, do we have, uh, do we have time for questions or that's not something? No? Okay, thank you. All right, no questions. <laughs> thank you. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, Sadia. Thank you, Gerard. And uh, thank you all for being a fabulous uh, listening audience. And uh, yes, please um, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. <laughs>